I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And this is the Journal Jam Podcast. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor medicine cases. With the COVID Omicron wave, we're seeing a lot of COVID patients, but the vast majority are not so sick and usually they can go home. Nonetheless, the numbers are so huge that even though they don't seem to be getting as sick as Alpha and Delta patients, that denominator is so high that the number of patients requiring hospitalization and or ICU admission is still pretty significant. And most would agree that the key to preventing a generalized healthcare meltdown is to prevent hospitalizations and ICU admissions. We also, as usual, want to curb morbidity and mortality. When I'm discharging a patient with COVID from the ED, I tell them to isolate, I tell them to keep well hydrated, and take acetaminophen or ibuprofen, and almost universally, they ask me, is that all you're going to offer me? Aren't you going to give me a prescription? In this Journal Jam podcast, we're going to dig deep into the science of FDA-approved outpatient medications for COVID with three critical appraisal masters. Infectious disease specialist Andrew Morris, who you've almost certainly heard before on EM cases, my EM colleague at North York General, and SREMI researcher Rohit Mohindra. Say hi, Rohit. Hi, everyone. And my Journal Jam co-conspirator, the amazing Justin Morgenstern. Welcome back, Justin and Andrew. We're not going to cover inpatient medications in depth, because we don't want to confuse you guys. There are so many medications out there for COVID. We're going to stick mostly to outpatient medications. Now, there are seven outpatient COVID meds in four categories that we're going to cover on this Journal Jam podcast, and they are the following. First category is the biologics, or the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, what I like to remember easily as the MABs. So that's Citrovimab, 500 milligrams IV. There's Evusheld, which is a combination of Tyxagevimab, again, the MAB at the end, and Silgavimab. And that one is for pre-exposure prophylaxis for those 12 years old and older. So that's the first category, the biologics, or neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, which from here on in we'll call the MABs. There's the second category, which are the nucleoside analogs, or the VIRs, the ones ending in VIR. So there's remdesivir, and that one's 200 milligrams IV on day one, and then 100 milligrams IV daily for two days. There's molnupiravir, and then there's Paxlovid, which is a combination of nirmatrelvir and ritonavir. I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of those properly, if I'm not, please let me know that I'm not. And then the third category are the SSRIs, which the one that's been studied mostly is fluvoxamine, 50 milligrams PO daily titrated to 100 milligrams POTID for 15 days. So that's the third category. And the fourth category are the corticosteroids, 
which is budesonide, big whopping dose of 800 micrograms BID for 14 days. And remember, of course, that dexamethasone is indicated for those who require supplemental oxygen and are being admitted, but we won't be covering dex in depth here. So, Andrew, can you give us a sort of a general sense of the pharmacologic rationale for these medications before we get into the evidence? Again, there's an SSRI, fluvoxamine. There's the ones ending in VIR, VIR, remdesivir, for example, which are the nucleoside analogs. There's budesonide, an inhaled corticosteroid, and there's the biologics, the neutralizing monoclonal antibody meds, so trovimab and ibusheld. Sure. So I'll start off with the monoclonal antibodies. Those monoclonal antibodies are designed to replicate what our body, if we were previously vaccinated or previously infected, would produce on our own, which would be our own antibodies against the spike protein on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. But because not everyone has those antibodies, we provide them in this kind of passive immunity. And so the two ways or the two agents that uh, we use for that are uh, citrovimab and uh, Evisheld, the combination. Um, and so the, the idea is that uh, they target the virus and they essentially neutralize the virus. So you may hear people refer to the term neutralizing antibodies and that's what we're really talking about here. These, these antibodies neutralize the virus by binding and then inactivating the virus itself. Okay, so th- those are the biologics, the neutralizing antibodies, and that makes like perfect physiologic sense. So, so far, I'm all positive about this. <laughs> yeah, and, and not only that, but you know, the times when it would work best would be where people wouldn't have those monoclonal antibodies. So that would be early on in infection when you're not previously infected or, or, or vaccinated, or for whatever reason, you just can't produce your own antibodies. So for example, a transplant patient may be infected for weeks and weeks on certain occasions. And so they theoretically could benefit even a little bit after the normal window where we recommend these agents in theory, just because they may never produce those, those antibodies. The Second class of agent I'll talk about is the antiviral or antivirals. So there's two really variations of those antivirals. The first one that was approved was remdesivir, and uh, it works like many other nucleoside inhibitors. It mimics the RNA virus's own building blocks and basically blocks transcription and replication. Paxlovid uh, works in a somewhat similar manner. And it's a combination agent. So the active agent is nermotrelvir. So that's the one that actually blocks the replication. But because it gets uh, rapidly metabolized by cytochrome P450, we boost its levels by inhibiting uh, cytochrome P450 with the reuse of ritonavir. So that's why it comes in a combination package. And people who have treated patients with HIV infection would be uh, very familiar with ritonavir. Um, for a long time, it was actually a, a backbone of therapy. The reason why it, it fell relatively out of favor is because of the problems it creates with drug interactions. And uh, we'll probably get into the challenges with Paxlovid and especially the drug-drug interactions. 
so so far the biologics and the antivirals you know just backing up a bit before we get into evidence part of evidence-based medicine and part of why you would use a medication is that it makes physiologic sense so those two definitely make physiologic sense i think you were saving the <laughs> the other ones that might not make as much physiologic sense for last so the two that might not but you know you could uh, prove me wrong here are the steroids and the SSRIs. So what are, what's the physiologic basis for, for those? Yeah. So what I think I'd, I'd first say is that, you know, th- there are really two phases to COVID infection. The first phase is where the biggest problem is the virus, and the virus itself doesn't cause people to be very, very sick. And that's why people who have circulating virus primarily aren't that sick. And that's why attacking them with anything that attacks the virus is helpful, um, whether it's the monoclonal antibodies or the antivirals. But a second phase emerges over time, and it starts to occur somewhere around seven to, I'll say, 10 days after initial infection. And what happens there is the body's immune response, the inflammatory response, really takes center stage and causes all the problems. And so most of those patients actually end up in hospital if they get to that stage severely enough. And they're the ones who have low oxygen or are fairly sick, and we try and inhibit the inflammatory cascade. We know if we use systemic corticosteroids in people with mild infection, the harms outweigh the benefits. And that's why dexamethasone primarily isn't advised in patients with mild infections without hypoxemia. But people have hypothesized that maybe the anti-inflammatory effects of corticosteroids, if they're just inhaled with lower systemic levels, may be beneficial. And uh, that's really the basis of using inhaled budesonide or cyclesonide is that it would early on reduce the inflammation, the initial inflammation, and perhaps attenuate illness and prevent people from seeking medical attention in some way. We'll talk about the evidence and why we may or may not use those agents. Okay. So if I'm to understand correctly there for the steroids, we know that it's beneficial for those really sick patients who are generally getting very sick after the first week where they have like a cytokine storm and there's just tons of inflammation and there it makes more sense than using it early. There's some inflammation. Sure, they have a cough and they might have some inflammation going on in their their lungs, but perhaps not quite as much physiologic basis as that first group who are getting sick after a week who have definite, you know, widespread inflammation going on. Is that Yeah, fair? well, I, I, think, I think we know that of the many, many people who progress to that inflammatory phase of COVID, a large percentage of those patients don't require medical attention um, because the inflammation just isn't severe enough or they feel well enough and their baseline is good enough. But there are some who probably just need a little bit of uh, admission for just a few days. And it's possible that those are the patients who may get a benefit from uh, inhaled corticosteroids. I don't know if that's true or not, but you know that's the theory at least. 
And let me just emphasize some something there there because Andrew's made a couple really, really important points for the EBM part of the show. This two-phase idea of, of COVID makes EBM really difficult because I think we'll talk later about some trials that are negative. They show no benefit. But is it because the drug doesn't have a benefit or because we gave it at the wrong time? And Andrew also emphasized the fact that a lot of people do just fine no matter what. And that's going to, again, complicate EBM. Is it because... Does the drug have no benefit or did we include the wrong people in the trials? So this is like, EBM is not easy. And as we go through these trials, this is always going to be one of those complicated uh, things. But the two-phased part of COVID, in my mind, particularly complicates a lot of these trials because we may have given the drug either too early or too late uh, is a pretty big deal when trying to, to interpret the science. Yes, I totally agree. And then we'll talk about all the other complicating factors, like which variant we're talking about. The timing, there, there's many others. We'll we'll definitely get to those. Th- that was a very good point. Do, do we drop the gloves now? I just need to know. Are we dropping the gloves now or are we dropping them later? <laughs> We're not there yet. Don't worry. We've got lots of time to argue, Andrew. Perfect. <laughs> so getting back on track here, we've talked about the physiologic basis for the biologics and for the antivirals, the MABs and the VIRs. Talked about steroids the last group is the SSRIs. So give us the physiologic basis for that, if any. Yeah, so it's primarily fluvoxamine. There are obviously other SSRIs. And, you know, fluvoxamine obviously is used for people who have neuropsychiatric illness. But fluvoxamine and some other SSRIs, but fluvoxamine is perhaps the best example of an agent that um, binds and agonizes or stimulates the sigma-1 receptor. The sigma-1 receptor sort of hangs out with the endoplasmic reticulum. And what it seems to do is it plays a role in the inflammatory cascade. So if you actually turn on sigma-1, it inhibits the inflammatory cascade. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. I'm kind of making it as, as simple as possible. But, um, you know, it was one of the agents that was theorized very early on from a few, you know, more mechanistic studies and animal studies that it might be beneficial. And for good or bad, uh, some early trials, therefore, when it was used in in COVID-19, suggested that there may be some benefit, which will bring us on to the evidence that uh, we'll be talking about shortly. Okay. And I suppose the same idea would apply, again, that Generally, the big inflammatory response happens at around a week or so. And so, again, timing is important. And again, there might be a subset of patients early on that some kind of anti-inflammatory drug can help. And the SSRIs are theoretically somewhat anti-inflammatory. Got it. Now we have a general sense of how these meds are supposed to work. And before we dive into the papers on each, I think it would be valuable for our listeners to reveal what our general biases are on the kind of science where meds are approved very quickly before we have a huge body of evidence to support them. So this might be where some of the boxing gloves come out. I don't know. Uh, Justin, why don't you go first? What's your kind of philosophy when it comes to prescribing meds when we don't have adequate, huge body of evidence, but we have this rush to try and get something 
to help these people who are suffering in a time where things are changing so quickly. Yeah. I think even the fact that you're phrasing COVID as special, I'm going to disagree with you right from the back. Because here's the thing. I think when it comes to evidence-based medicine, COVID is not special at all. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about evidence over the years, and we never have perfect evidence. We always have to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. And the key is that all medications have at least some degree of harm. And so we're always looking for just enough evidence to convince us that the benefit outweighs the harms. And so I think it's pretty clear that we should be using the same standards of science now as we always do. I know that there are going to be some who argue that there's an urgency to this situation, uh, that pandemic means that we should accept more uncertainty. And there's a degree, right? Our hospital systems in some cases are crumbling. And the more we can do, the faster to keep people out of hospitals, out of the ICU, uh, the better. And I think the problem is, the first time I hear that, that sounds very, very reasonable on the surface. But I, I think there's some major flaws in the logic if you dig a little bit deeper, because I think very importantly, that argument assumes that there's benefit to the treatment. When we know we have a large body of history in medicine that actually most new experimental therapies don't end up helping our patients. We have long-standing scientific standards for a reason, because if you can't meet those standards, it's actually more likely that you're going to cause harm than good, because every chemical that we put into the human body does cause a degree of harm, and benefit's actually pretty hard to accomplish. So the idea that we need to rush experimental drugs to save our hospital systems, I, I think it could actually easily backfire, and we have to keep that in mind. We could actually end up causing more hospitalizations because of side effects from these drugs. You know, back before COVID, I, I think I saw this all the time. I saw this with Tamiflu, for example. We know that Tamiflu has no real benefit, uh, but we would see two, three patients every shift during flu season who were one or two days into their course of Tamiflu and now had a severe headache vomiting, diarrhea, whatever it was, there was no benefit from the Tamiflu, but now they're in the emergency department with side effects. When there's no benefit, there can only be harm. And so I think there's a good chance that Tamiflu actually ended up increasing emergency department visits. So I think you got to be very, very careful with the science. And we have our scientific standards for a reason. And there's one other thing that point that I think is very important to, to make over the last two years. Uh, and that's that research has looked a little bit different. I think that false positives over the last two years during the pandemic are actually a fair amount more likely. And the reason for that is in early 2020, we had a disaster on our hands. And so we literally took every chemical that we could think of, every experimental drug, and just threw it at COVID. We just started running trial after trial. And if you throw enough stuff at a target, some of it is going to hit. But the problem is that some of it's going to hit by chance alone. And if you did a single trial where you tested 20 different drugs in that trial and one or two were statistically significant, you would know to be cautious because you were testing so many things. But that's sort of what's happening on a grander scale. We're testing everything worldwide, but they just happen to be in separate trials. Since early 2020, the sheer number of RCTs being run means that some of them are going to be uh, positive by chance alone. You just don't know which one. So I think we just need to be cautious. Our scientific threshold, this is what Journal Jam has been about in a long way. Our scientific threshold in medicine is pretty low. We use a p-value. We use thresholds that are, are laughable in other areas of science. Most of our results can't already can't be replicated. And right now, already, we're already happy to start using drugs when we see a potential benefit that outweighs harms. So why would we change that threshold at all during a pandemic? We need good science to ensure that we're actually causing net benefit and not net harm. Yeah. You know, Justin, 
I think this is actually a really good point where I just want to say thank you, really, to you, because before we started doing Journal Jam, I was one of these very positive docs who used to like jump on the train of things that something that could potentially work. And I got all excited about it. Just in my general positivity, I would try the medication and start giving the medication and talk about it on the podcast. And then so many times it would turn out that actually it doesn't work or it does cause harm. So anyway, so I just wanted to say thank you for making me think about these things in a different way. I should have said it a long time ago, but I'll say it now. I appreciate it. Rohit, what's your take on your sort of general philosophy about giving medications that are still sort of in the experimental phase? Yeah, I mean, I think COVID is a unique situation in that we're treating a, a relatively new disease. A lot of evidence-based medicine that we're used to is kind of nudging us out of our old patterns into new treatment plans or new diagnostic tests and things like that. But COVID, we're really starting from scratch. And I think it's important to understand that there's going to be some limitations to the studies we do. As, as Justin rightly mentioned, that we're going to have a lot of false positives. I think the important thing is to keep an open mind and also think a little bit about the study results and, and how they're actually going to change. And sort of say to yourself, you know, I might try this medication. I, I might have some benefit to the patient, but I don't know that yet. And having an honest conversation with, with your patients about it. Sometimes they're frustrated and they're sick and they're unwell. And we're at a point now where we don't really know what helps. And it's a tough point for us to be in and it's a tough point for patients to be in. And we know we can get there. You know, the HIV pandemic, I think, was a good example of that, where now we do have safe, well-tolerated, well-established treatments, but it took us 30 years to get there. So it's a long, slow process, which is hard for the patient at the time they're not feeling well. But I think we do have to sort of take a step back and say, this is what we have to offer. This is the limitation of what it is. And let's make a decision together. Yeah, excellent. I mean, it's interesting what you said about HIV. You know, we've got to start somewhere. So the whole history of science actually is experimenting, failing, and then trying it again until something finally sticks. I think that's really a good way of thinking about it, actually. And I love the idea of the patient-centered approach is if you are going to use these medications, it's something to actually discuss what the pros and cons are with the patient. If, you know, if they are desperate for something and you're desperate for something, and even though you know the evidence isn't there yet, discussing that fact, which I think sometimes maybe we don't have the, we think we don't have the time for, uh, but that we really should, should do in the emergency department. Andrew, your take on your uh, philosophy on pushing these drugs through before they have a huge evidence base? So I'm going to make a, a few statements, I guess. The, the first one I'll say is that um, anyone who knows me, I'm a, in general a really, really conservative prescriber. You know, I rarely trust a single randomized controlled trial. I expect, uh, you know, multiple trials to show me the way before deciding on them. You know, I'll point out that we've probably lost internationally somewhere between 30 and 50 million lives so far. We've got about 6 million lives that we can count already in the span of two years. And because of that, I think the rules are different. The speed and, and the window to save lives changes. I don't know how many lives are going to be lost due to COVID over the next two years. 
I'm hoping and anticipate that it will be a fraction of what was lost in the prior two years. So there is a time element. It's a little different than when you don't have a time element because you've got a, a, a pretty steady stream of diseases with usually some marginal improvements in, in patient outcomes and, and, and risk factors like coronary artery disease, for example. The second thing I'll, I'll point out, and we sort of t- uh, touched on this early on, is we have an incredibly good understanding of the pathogenesis of this disease. The speed of knowledge that we've gained with this disease is much greater than many others. And, you know, I, I was actually a skeptic. I, I told people that the first candidate drugs that people were considering, none of them would work. And that the likelihood, I'm pretty sure I, I tweeted something like this, that the likelihood that we will have an agent, even one agent that has any benefit in the first year is going to be negligible. When in fact, we almost certainly had two such agents being remdesivir and corticosteroids that showed a benefit. The other thing I'll, I'd probably uh, point out is that you need more than just a mechanistic understanding because mechanistic understanding often leads us awry because we need some humility and understanding pathophysiology and pathogenesis of disease. But it also has to do with, as, as Justin was alluding to, is, is the consistency of results. I often talk about this with monoclonal antibodies because citrovimab, as an example, and we'll talk about this, has only really been used in outpatients. But we have a lot of experience now and a lot of trials with, with anti-spike monoclonal antibodies at various stages of disease in various settings with different patient populations, but they all have a relatively consistent effect over time in terms of its the relative efficacy and the time dependency on that. And all of those play a role in deciding whether something should be recommended or not. The last point that I'm going to make is that Patient preference, and uh, Rohit mentioned this uh, or alluded to this, is is really important. And as somebody who's been, you know, in the thick of issuing guidance, you know, we have patient partners on our uh, guidelines panel, and they've influenced our views on things a lot. And so, where we may not have necessarily suggested a, a treatment purely based on evidence, what patients told us were important for them, changed how we thought about uh, whether something should be recommended. And at the end of the day, you know, I think we're in the business of taking care of patients. Wow. I mean, there you go, folks. You just got three incredibly thoughtful, quite different, a little bit of overlap there, but quite different views on sort of the philosophy of science and experimental drugs in a time when things are changing quickly. I'm going to listen to that one like over a few times. I rarely listen to the podcast back, but that was, that was excellent. Just a quick announcement today, the day this journal jam is released, February 15th, 2022 is the last day to get access to the entire EM cases summit video streaming package, the huge conference with all the procedural videos, panel discussions, and cutting edge talks from all your favorite EM cases, guest experts, grab your package at emcasesummit.com.
not the usual EM Cases website, but emcasesummit.com. Access will close at midnight Eastern Standard Time, February 15th. Let's dive into the guidelines before we go into specific studies. So we're going to use the Ontario COVID Drugs and Biologics Clinical Practice Guideline as sort of a springboard for our discussion, partly because there are local guidelines for everyone here around the table, partly because Andrew is a co-chair for the guidelines. We'll announce that now as sort of a conflict of interest if you want to look at it that way, but I see it more as uh, sort of a, a sneak peek behind the scenes view of of the guidelines to help guide us. We'll have a table in the show notes, but just a quick overview of the outpatient section. So the guidelines recommend that outpatient medications only be given to moderate and higher risk, mildly ill patients. Again, that's moderate and higher risk, mildly ill patients. So what that means is that includes immunocompromised people, unvaccinated people, vaccinated people who were vaccinated more than six months ago. And people over the age of 60 or over the age of 50, if they're indigenous, plus have some risk factors like obesity, diabetes, renal insufficiency, sickle cell disease, active cancer, organ transplant, cerebral palsy, or intellectual disability. So that's what they mean by mildly ill patients who have moderate to high risk. And for citrovimab, It's recommended only for immunocompromised people and unvaccinated people over 60 years old, 50 years old for indigenous people. There are many more details in the guidelines, but don't worry, we'll have them in the show notes, like I said. So let's talk about the first category, the biologics, the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, the MABs. Again, it's citrovimab, 500 milligrams IV once, and Evusheld, which is a combination of two MABs uh, for pre-exposure prophylaxis for 12 years and older. Justin, why don't you uh, take the lead on the MABs for us? Yeah, I'm I'm probably not alone. I find the biologics really confusing, and I hope it's not just me, and it's not just because the names are really hard to pronounce, but the thing is biologics can target a lot of different things, and Andrew already sort of talked about that today, but today we're really going to focus on the outpatient treatment, and and that means neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, and if that sounds confusing, we already do this in emergency medicine. Tetanus or rabies are immunoglobulin. That's, we use this. We know what it is, and it's good. That means that there's a pretty strong physiologic basis for what we're for we're doing here. We're used to these kind of agents, but the stuff we're going to talk about today really is sotrivimab. That, that's the one that we see right now in Ontario, at, at least. There are some other agents out there. There's bamlanivimab. Uh, I definitely butchered that one, and I only call it by its uh, actual name, Regencov, which is a combination of two other MABs. Uh, um, they all target the spike protein, but the reason you're not going to hear about the uh, the other two agents is after Delta and Omicron, they just don't seem to uh, attach or bind well to the variant spike protein. So it's really citrivimab that we're, we're left with right now. Uh, but we will talk briefly about their evidence because I think the evidence for all neutralizing antibodies, uh, especially because the evidence came before those variants, is relatively important to know about because there may be some crossover uh, in terms of the evidence. Consistency, like Andrew said, is pretty important. So for citrivimab, so, so There is just a single RCT. It's the Comet ICE trial. It's a high-quality trial. It's multi-center, double-blind, 
placebo-controlled, everything we want to see. It's adult patients within five days of symptom onset with at least one risk factor for severe disease. They randomized 868 patients. The analysis only includes 580 patients. I'm not sure exactly why. It was a little bit confusing to me there. The trial was stopped early. That does tend to overestimate benefits, but it was a positive trial. It looks really good. Hospitalization went down from 7% to 1%. There was only a single death in the trial, so you can't really say anything about that. Look, no trial is 100% perfect. There are a few problems here. They did change their primary outcome from the trial registry, and they don't actually explain why they did that. It was stopped early. The overall numbers are pretty small. It's three hospitalizations versus 21. uh, So you can get some statistical problems when you do that. I think most importantly, this is just a single study. And as we've said many times on on Journal uh, JAM, a single study can never be definitive. There are just too many sources of bias in science. Replication is always essential. But one very good-looking positive trial for citrifimab. There are, as I said, some evidence from the other agents that we're no longer using right now. I I don't know that you can extrapolate the evidence perfectly, but in general, drugs within the same class, drugs that do the same kinds of things, generally perform similarly. So, And the data comes before the novel variant. So I think we should at least talk briefly about Regen-CoV. So the biggest trial of Regencov is the recovery trial, a lot bigger than what we just talked about, close to 10,000 patients. Now, it's nowhere close to a perfect trial. It's an unblinded trial, so always very high risk of bias. And for some reason, even though it was released back in June 2021, it's still only available as a preprint. There's not a proper publication of this trial. This is a really interesting trial. It was a negative trial. There was no difference in their primary outcome. Mortality was 20 versus 21%. There was no difference in their secondary outcomes, like things like need for mechanical ventilation. Like recovery was a very negative trial. But it was it was fascinating. They had this subgroup analysis. So it turns out about half of this population had SARS-CoV antibodies at baseline. And the whole point of the this therapy is to give antibodies to people who don't have them, to provide passive immunity to people who don't have these antibodies. And if you look at just the people without antibodies, the, the seronegative patients, it really looks like Regen-CoV reduces mortality. And that would obviously be a pretty important clinical finding. But... You got to be really careful with that. Even though there's really good physiologic reasons for the subgroup, subgroups in medicine rarely turn out to be true. We've, I've covered studies before, and you know it's very close to 0% of subgroups that get proven in later studies. I think this one is maybe more likely to be true than other subgroups and other RCTs, but I think there's a more important side to this. If you think the seronegative subgroup is true, if you buy that finding you got to accept the opposite as well, which is that in this study, the seropositive subgroup had increased mortality. And I think that has pretty important implications for treatment in 2022. I think in 2022, we can expect a lot more people to be seropositive, people to have previous infections and people to be immunized. So if the recovery subgroups are true, neutralizing antibodies could be a bit of a high-risk proposition because it looks like they might increase mortality in those seropositive patients. I think the one last thing to say about the recovery trial, you know, I would expect neutralizing antibodies in terms of just they're wiping up the virus that is around to be beneficial early in infection. That that makes the most sense when viral loads are high, 
but not later when you have that significant inflammatory load. And in the recovery trial, these were hospitalized patients, an average of nine days after symptom onset. And they don't tell us like how sick these patients were, how many were on oxygen, but 94% were given systemic steroids. So I think this is a pretty sick group of patients. And it's quite possible that we just gave the Regencov too late. Rohit, would it be fair to say from sort of a researcher perspective that the subgroup makes physiologic sense that if we can just target that subgroup subgroup and do another RCT of, you know, with a huge N of just those people who, who have been tested for the antibody, if you did a good, robust RCT just on those people, I mean, to me, that sounds kind of exciting that we're heading somewhere with this, that we shouldn't just throw it out as, well, okay, this study had so many problems Let's just throw it out. It kind of seems like it could be an exciting path to go down at least. What do you think? Yeah, sure. In theory, it would work really well. But I think, you know, COVID's changing as these studies are going on. Um, More people are getting vaccinated. Omicron is sweeping through communities. So I think we're going to see less and less people who are truly seronegative and don't have any antibody reaction. It's going to be a harder population to find and a harder population to study. And they may not get the numbers they need to show kind of a benefit. And it may be time as as we move forward to look past the monoclonal antibodies and look at other treatments to help prevent infections or prevent them from getting worse. But the monoclonal antibodies may not benefit from from further RCTs. Okay. My my positivity and hope crushed yet again. <laughs> I'm hopeful too, but you know, I think we have to realize what's happening with COVID is that yeah, it's no, coming, absolutely. Coming, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. On, on the positive note, why don't we talk about the other couple studies for GenCoV? Because they there are a couple other studies that do show positive results, unlike uh, recovery. So there's a study by Weinrich in 2021. That one's tricky to me. It's a study that was designed, funded, and analyzed by the drug company, which is always a little bit questionable. And the manuscript, in my mind, is a bit of a mess. The conclusions in the abstract are it's positive, and they show a 2% absolute decrease in what I consider a pretty biased and and flawed primary outcome. I don't think we need to talk about it at at length, but it is a positive trial. And the last one is O'Brien 2021. It's another industry-funded trial. Uh, this one to me is a little bit more interesting, slightly different. They gave it to as a preventative agent. So they gave it to household contacts of people who were sick with COVID-19. In this trial, they tested everybody for those COVID antibodies, and they excluded everybody with existing antibodies, which is not something we're doing clinically right right now. And it's just not something we have available to us in the emergency department. But in the 1,500 patients in the trial, Regencov did decrease symptomatic infection by about 6% overall, 8% in the control group to about 2% in the uh, treatment uh, group. So there is some other positive trials uh, to go with that original citrovimab trial. The other one that is interesting, the other agent that has been mentioned is Evishield. And as far as I know, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe that there is anything published on Evishield yet. It's been proved by the FDA and and in Canada, but it's not, there's no actual published data at this point. I mean, isn't that fact amazing that it's actually approved by, I mean, the FDA, you know, historically has jumped on things very quickly and Canada's usually lags quite far behind. But that, that is quite something that there's actually no published trials and it's it's approved before there's even published trials. Before we get to sort of our take-home message about the MABs, could you just give us a summary of all the data? 
Yeah, I wish I could just give you a single, simple one sentence thing. And, and I, I feel really sorry for people who have to try to make a single sentence in a guideline, uh, Andrew. But this is actually pretty difficult, I think. You know, so Map has a single, really, really good RCT, and it's positive. But it is, a, it is a single trial. And the biggest study overall, the recovery trial, was a pretty clearly, strongly negative trial. So it's pretty hard. Can we be certain that these drugs work after a single RCT? I think absolutely not. The evidence here is is pretty weak and weaker than I would have expected considering how hard these are being uh, pushed and how much work we're doing in order to make sure that patients can get them. Uh, is the evidence strong enough to use citrivanab right, right now? I honestly don't know. I think it's right on the edge. A single RCT is generally not enough evidence. We've We've gone over that before, but... We're used to this. We have to make decisions with limited evidence. And in this case, I think it's pretty reasonable. I think ideally patients would still be randomized to RCT, uh, RCTs, but we know we're not. most of us are not working in places where patients can go into an R- RCT. Uh, so I think it's reasonable for the, for the high-risk outpatients to get citrivimab right now, knowing and acknowledging that this is very, very weak evidence that there's any kind of benefit here. And part of my reason for that is what Andrew mentioned at the top is out of all the agents we're going to talk today, I think the pretest probability for these neutralizing uh, antibodies is probably the highest of any of the things that we're going to uh, talk about today. We've used them before in things like tetanus and, and rabies. We understand very well how they work and it makes sense that they they would work. So even though this is very weak evidence, I think we, we could start at a slightly higher pretest probability. And so that one strong RCT from sotrivimab is probably enough to allow us to give it to patients uh, right now. There's a bit of a flip side to that is, is it worth the cost and the testing and the on, ongoing going use? Uh, what is the cost benefit of, of all this is a completely other question, question. But from a strict EBM analysis, I think it's borderline right on the edge, but I, I think it's reasonable to give it to patients. All right. So the guidelines say that it is recommended, but only again for immunocompromised people and unvaccinated people over 60 years old or 50 if you're indigenous. Andrew, what should be sort of the bottom line take-home message for for the MABs and for Citrivimab in, in particular? Yeah, you know, I, I think Justin covered it very well. I'll, I'll disagree about his interpretation of the re- recovery trial. There are clear challenges with using monoclonal antibodies, as Rohit mentioned in, in 2022 and, and beyond, just the practicalities of finding out who it would benefit, right? But we anticipated that it would only be helpful in patients who don't have antibodies, right? You wouldn't expect it to be beneficial in patients who have antibodies. And that's why it was, it was a pre-specified endpoint. But there's other trials also that are consistent with the benefits of monoclonal antibodies that we don't consider anymore because the agents aren't effective anymore. So uh, BLAZE2, BLAZE4, and other trials that, you know, for post-exposure prophylaxis, for example, in long-term care settings and high-risk households, which also showed a benefit. The problem is that those people aren't necessarily at the highest risk. And so you may not want to use it because it just isn't cost-effective or, or practical in any way, but it's a consistent result. And, and I think the most important thing is there's a, a very consistent result in my mind that catching patients early on when they don't have neutralizing antibodies of their own is beneficial. And the challenge always is going to be at what baseline risk do you provide these therapies? And and that's why from a guideline perspective, we've uh, given them 
uh, really at the only highest risk twofold. One is it's probably not cost effective, but on the other hand, but the other aspect of it is you're going to be administering it to, you know, probably hundreds of people if you don't uh, cut it off. And most of those trials, the number needed to treat was somewhere between 17, 16, 17, and around 30. And that already, you know, it's probably favorable, but it's probably just at, at the cutoff. And uh, what we did in Ontario with the uh, science table is we made it even uh, a higher baseline risk so that the number needed to treat that we anticipated would be somewhere in the order of around 7 to 10. So Andrew, can I ask you, so obviously you believe the subgroup in the recovery, which I I think is reasonable, but that makes me really concerned because then there's the opposite subgroup, which is increased mortality in the seropositive patients. So clinically speaking, how do I approach that? We're not testing people for seropositivity in the emergency department, uh, and this is a medication that is then high risk. It could potentially increase mortality in a population of patients if if I give it to them based on those, those results. So I, I think a few things. First of all, it's the only study which, remember that several of those other trials, including uh, Comet ICE, did, did not require seronegativity for enrollment, right? Uh, recovery was actually the only trial that did, probably because they're seen at a later stage of disease, right? So uh, whereas the earlier ones, they, they really didn't care, but there was no as we could tell, harm signal. And they did look for it, at least in the supplemental data or the preprints, you can see the data by subgroup. And you can see that there's no appreciable harm signal in any of them. In fact, recovery is the only trial that shows a significant, and it isn't actually statistically significant, just a trend to harm. The second thing that I would point out is this adds on to a much larger body of data that we have on convalescent plasma where there has never really been a harm signal for convalescent plasma. There are some, you know, I think the efficacy is, is questionable and, and that's much more controversial. We won't get into it. It's not even available in Canada anymore, really. But there's no, I don't, I don't think there's a strong reason to believe that there's going to be for outpatient therapy uh, any concerns around a, a harm signal because of what we saw in recovery in that subgroup. Okay, so to summarize there, the guidelines do recommend the MABs, specifically Citrovimab, for those high-risk patients. There looks like, you know, even though one of the trials showed a trend to harm, we don't have enough data yet to tell us really uh, what the harms will be. It's safe enough to say that we really want to, if we are going to give this drug, that we want to give it as early as possible. Is that fair to say, Andrew? Absolutely. I would also just add, I have the most confidence around the both the combination of efficacy and safety with sotrovimab compared to any of the other therapies that we're going to be discussing. That combination of efficacy, safety, and practicality is actually the highest at the moment in my mind. Rohit, what's your bottom line with uh, sotrovimab? I mean, I think these patients are high-risk patients without antibodies, and I, I do think it's worth... Given the evidence we have, it's worth offering it to these patients. I think there could be a benefit from them. I think monoclonal antibodies are going to be a hard treatment to study for for coronavirus. I think, as we saw with the previous trials, is that as the variants shift, the the antibody efficacy drops, and it's going to be harder to kind of figure out who are the patients that are going to benefit from these treatments. 
So it may be a temporary thing. Monoclonal antibody may be a temporary treatment that we see goes out of favor as time goes on. But I, I do think that Andrew is right that of the data we have now, and it is limited and it has limitations, as Justin has quite clearly explained, this is probably the safest and most beneficial treatment we have to keep patients uh, safe. All right. That was the first category, the MABs. Uh, we can now move on to the second category, which is the inhaled corticosteroids. So remember, this is inhaled corticosteroids. I think budesonide is the one that's most often talked about. Um, we're not talking about dexamethasone for inpatients. This is outpatients, and this is giving them a puffer to go. Rohit, could you take the lead on this one? What do the guidelines say, and what do the studies show? Sounds good. So the guidelines say budesonide may be considered in mildly ill patients who are at moderate to high risk of deterioration, but it is based on a low certainty of evidence. And some of the early case reports with COVID-19 showed that there were, may have been a protective effect uh, in patients who took these medications regularly, like asthmatic patients and COPD patients. So there's some kind of rationale to kind of go forward with this. It's also relatively a low-cost medication. It's generally available. The manufacturer makes it already, and it has a low side effect profile. So it may actually be a good treatment for us to offer. There's really only two trials that have looked closely at this, and I'll talk about them. Um, the first one is a STOIC trial. It was done in 2020, so this is earlier in the pandemic. It was an open-label phase two trial. And the phase two trial is really where they're just making sure that the medication is actually doing what the drug company or the trial investigators think it's doing and making sure it's not causing harm. And in that sense, it probably was a successful trial. They were able to reduce their primary outcome from 15% of patients who had COVID-related hospital visits to 3%. But their absolute numbers were very small. So that's 11 patients to 2 patients. And their clinical improvement was only increased by a day. As well, the outcome is not necessarily patient-centered. It's more of a system-centered outcome. So offering it to patients, it may be difficult to tell them this is the benefit that you're going to get. Maybe it's going to keep you from visiting a hospital, but we don't really know. I think this led nicely to the next trial, which is the principal trial, which is a larger RCT done in the United Kingdom. They basically randomized anybody over the age of 65 or 50 with a long list of comorbidities uh, to get 800 micrograms twice a day uh, or to get usual care. And they had some interesting outcomes. Their primary outcome was initially hospital admission or death due to COVID-19. But then they added self-reported recovery throughout the trial. As they were finding they weren't actually getting the rate of primary outcome that they were interested in, they added this other outcome through the middle of the study to try to show some benefit. Red flag, red flag, red flag. Yeah, which is always a, always a little bit of a, a tricky thing. And, and their results, although it seems impressive at first, you have to wonder if it really is going to make a, a big difference, where they sort of said that the time to recovery with ubidesonide was about 11.8 days, and without it was 14.7, which is only about two and a half to three days. And it didn't improve hospitalization or death um, or any of the other outcomes that they were looking at. And they actually ended up stopping the trial early, but they stopped it early on the time to recovery outcome and not on the other outcomes which they had initially designed the study for. So there are some red flags. 
They changed their screening criteria as well. So initially, they were referred, patients were referred by their healthcare doctor. Then they could self refer. So they may have lost some of the outcome effectiveness because they started to change the inclusion criteria. And if you look carefully at the data, they're actually the biggest effect modifier. So what actually made patients better was vaccination, which is really what we know is probably the most important thing for most of these patients. So it's, you know, budesonide certainly can make patients feel better. And I can actually speak with some personal biases. I had COVID about a month ago and I had to take budesonide because I was having a lot of bronchospasm. But in terms of actually keeping patients out of hospital or making them feel better faster, I don't think the data supports that right now. In terms of offering it to patients, I think it could be offered to certain patients. Certainly my own practice is to to discuss it with patients, especially if they have clear signs of bronchospasm or their history of reactive airway disease or asthma. This certainly could be a good adjunct to their treatment, but it's certainly not going to be the thing that keeps them out of hospital or gets them better faster. And Rohit, I actually think the data may be more negative than you portrayed it as for for a couple of reasons. First of all, just to emphasize, these are both unblinded trials. And so they went from an objective, semi-objective at least, hospitalization outcome to a symptom-based outcome. And so when you say patients felt better in a couple of days, that's exactly what you expect from a placebo effect. So they, they demonstrated the placebo effect in an unblinded trial. That's not super surprising. And I think that's really important because I missed it originally as well, because everybody talks about budesonide rather than just the class of inhaled steroids, but there are actually two, are, are two other RCTs of inhaled steroids, uh, and both are blinded. Uh, so both looked at ciclesonide. So clemency 2022 is 400 patients with symptoms confirmed COVID, double-blind trial, and there was no difference at all. Symptoms was 19 days in both groups, no difference, no difference in death, no difference in hospital admission. The contained trial, again, it's phase two, it's only 200 patients, but double-blind. They use both intranasal and inhaled steroids, but no difference between the groups. It's double-blind, it's placebo-controlled. So we see a symptom benefit in the unblinded trials, which is exactly what you expect from a placebo effect, and we see no symptom benefit in the double blind trials. Uh, so it makes it, it much, much, much less likely that that effect is real. I will say, so there's a hint and people may argue about this. So the like hospitalizations may be down a tiny bit in this group, but I think it's really important to emphasize that hospitalization is not an objective outcome in an unblinded trial. If you're a patient who is sitting at home and has been given no treatment for uh, for COVID and you're hacking up your lung all night, you go to the emergency department complaining about your symptoms. If you've been given what you've been told is the treatment for COVID, you try the puffer for a few more days and you probably get better on, on your own. So somebody in the no treatment arm of a unblinded trial is much more likely to show up in the emergency department. If they show up a couple times, they actually might be more likely to be admitted to hospital and it can all be subjective because of the unblinded nature of these trials. So I think these are pretty negative trials uh, and you're seeing a lot of placebo effect in my eyes. I think there's also a big problem too with the, the trial being done in the UK. The NHS set up these COVID kind of hospital reduction centers, which were kind of ways to unload the emergency department. So you could go to them if you had COVID symptoms and get seen by a doctor and maybe get started on treatment, or you could call a number. And and these may have kept some more of these patients out from visiting hospitals. So I agree with you totally, Justin. I think the effect size is generally much, much smaller, if not no significant difference between them when when we look at this further down the road. 
Hey, can you guys get your hands on any uh, placebo puffers? <laughs> I guess the one thing I'd point out, and I, I don't disagree with anything that's been said, but you know, Justin, you mentioned the clemency trial. So, so clemency and colleagues, that was a cyclosanide placebo-controlled trial, 400 patients. And ER visits or hospital admissions, it was like fivefold greater in the patients who got placebo, right? Like it was 1% versus 5 and change, like 5.4%, right? And that's the, that's the placebo arm that you're looking for. So I agree with you that there's a, a massive placebo effect right? Or, or the po- massive possibility of placebo effect. But when there's actually a placebo arm, which is what you guys want, I think, especially when we, at least in Canada, certainly in Ontario, hospital admissions and eMERGE visits are, are really important. They have been important at every wave. And a 80% or so reduction in ED visits or hospital admissions, I think is pretty impressive. Look, I'm not sold on on inhaled corticosteroids by any means. I think there's a fair amount of uncertainty. But if you're trying to balance what I perceive as the risks of inhaled corticosteroids for a couple of weeks versus the potential benefit and then disclosing. And, you know, Rhoda, I'm, I'm glad you didn't go see Justin with your COVID. Um, if, I, I, in full disclosure, you didn't come see me. Um, but I would have give I would have offered you bedesonide or succesonide, <laughs> and I'm glad you took. Yeah, to clarify this, Andrew, though the clemency trial is very negative. It was 19.0 days of symptoms in both groups. There was no difference in hospital admission, so it was like the fifth uh, secondary outcome all the way down. A composite of emergency departments or hospitalizations, and not emergency departments or hospitalizations. And we'll get to this in future talks, I think. But emergency departments or hospitalizations due to COVID, so it's not all cause uh, like. That it's it's such a hackneyed secondary outcome, and with a p value of 0.03, it's not real. There's no way that a p value of 0.03 in a secondary outcome is a, is a real outcome in an overall negative trial. It just like the chances of that being real are are tiny. But I will agree with you to to continue on that the harms are tiny tiny as well. So I think the evidence here is next to nothing, but we give out steroid puffers to everybody, like for, for everything. So am I going to slap you on the wrist for giving out a steroid puffer? No. I look at this a lot like bronchiolitis for the eMERGE doc, right? We know the evidence tells us don't give puffers to the kids. You shouldn't give puffers to the kids. The evidence clearly tells you, you shouldn't give puffers to the kids. You're still going to give them out every once in a while. So I am close to 0%. I almost never prescribe inhaled steroids. I think the evidence suggests I shouldn't prescribe inhaled steroids, but there's patients who come in who just can't sleep because of their cough. They're really symptomatic. I'll give inhaled steroids if, if they need something, but I'm pretty sure I'm prescribing placebo. Actually, Justin, that's a very good analogy with bronchiolitis because there's a small subset of patients who you think have bronchiolitis who actually have asthma. And it's those patients who are going to benefit from your steroids. And just like Rohit's individual personal case, he had bronchospasm. And sometimes it's hard to know exactly which patients will end up having bronchospasm and aspects of asthma or or uncover asthma that they previously didn't know they had and now they have. I think it, it's fair enough to say that any patient who you think might have an aspect of reactive airways disease, asthma, COPD, you know, a 20-pack year smoker, et cetera, I think it's fair enough to say that those patients might benefit from a steroid and maybe we should concentrate our energies on giving those patients steroids. Is that fair? I think it also speaks to the trouble with research and evidence-based medicine 
and bedside medicine. You know, research it looks at groups of patients, but bedside medicine is looking at the patient in front of you. And so evidence-based medicine is certainly going to guide your decisions. But there's other things that are going to come into play, and, and don't forget about those because those are t- important to take in consideration as well. And as, as we're seeing, the evidence around the treatments is going to change, but we still have to treat patients and get them feeling better. I would point out that initially thinking about this, I, I would never re- would recommend uh, inhaled corticosteroids based on the evidence, but patients want it, right? When patients are provided with the information, at least our patient advisors, they said, this is important enough for us that we think that, uh, you know, and, and these are people who had recovered from, from COVID, so they may be biased, of course, but they said, you know, I, I, even if there was that small a chance, I would have taken it if it would have prevented uh, some admission, recognizing that it may have not that much benefit. There's a pretty big role as a doctor to be the evidence-based practitioner and sort of protect patients from themselves. Patients want antibiotics for their bronchitis. They want antibiotics for, for everything. But just because a patient wants something doesn't necessarily mean a, a whole lot here. And I guess it depends a lot on how you presented this evidence to, to them. Outside of the, again, there's an art to medicine. If you're following studies strictly 100% of the time in EBM, you're making a mistake. But if you're straying from the evidence more than 50% of the time, you're also probably making a mistake. There's a sweet spot. You, you should break from these these trials some, sometimes, but I think this is mostly negative. I think we could all agree that we're disagreeing a little bit, and I think that's great because uh, the audience can now listen to what we all have to say and come up with their own approach. Let's move on to the third class of drugs we're talking about, and that's the SSRIs. So we've covered the MABs, and we've covered the steroids. The SSRIs, and I have to admit that when I first saw this coming out that they were treating COVID with SSRIs, I'm like, how could this possibly do anything except, you know, the patient might be so sad that they have COVID that now they're a little less sad after they've taken an SSRI, but as... Andrew eloquently pointed out there are some anti-inflammatory properties. So there's some somewhat good physiologic reasoning behind this. Justin, can you take the lead on this one in terms of uh, the evidence? I understand there's a couple RCTs on this one. Yeah. Unfortunately, almost every chemical interacts with the immune system at some point. So almost everything can be potentially anti-inflammatory. So I'm not sure. I think uh, we disagreed a little bit on the, on the last one. I think it's, the disagreements will get bigger and bigger as we go. But for vamoxamine, the, the evidence is relatively straightforward. There are two RCTs worth talking about. And I do think, again, it, in my mind, it's worth reiterating before we jump into these trials, the idea of pretest probability. And Andrew addressed it a, a little bit. Uh, I think if you came to me or if I came to you in March of 2020 and told you, hey, fluvoxamine was going to be the cure for COVID, you would have looked at me like I was crazy. There's no way you would would have believed me. In my mind, and this may upset some people, I think there's probably even less reason to believe, even with the uh, potential anti-inflammatory effects, there's even less reason to think that fluvoxamine would work than something like hydroxychloroquine or maybe even ivermectin. But let's, let's jump into the RCTs. So the very first trial uh, published was the STOP COVID trial. Great name. It was just a pilot study, really interesting study. It was mostly a pilot to see if they could enroll patients electronically. These patients were actually never seen in person. They got enrolled online. They got the medication sent to them through the mail, and then they f- filled out surveys online 
Very interesting study uh, design, but you can imagine some flaws in a study or at least some potential flaws in a study where patients are never seen in person and data is only collected through self-reported surveys. Um, it is a placebo-controlled double-blind trial, and it's a positive trial. Their primary outcome was clinical deterioration, and it was less in the fluvoxamine group, 0% versus 8.3%. But it's a small trial. It's a pilot study with only 152 patients. And because it's self-reported survey data, they did lose track of almost 25% of patients in the, in the trial. So small, but clearly some issues. And you would probably never base practice on a trial like this. And, and really nobody did. This was early in, in 2020. Now, it was a pilot, which sort of hints at the fact that there's a full trial. And indeed, there is a stop COVID-2 trial. And we'll come back to that in a second. The big trial that everybody talks about for fluvoxamine is the TOGETHER trial. So it's a randomized trial of 1,500 basically unvaccinated adults within seven days of symptom onset, and they had to have at least one high-risk feature. And it is a placebo-controlled RCT, which is good, and their conclusion is that there's a benefit. Uh, but in my mind, th this trial is just an absolute mess. There's, there's so many problems with, with this trial, and I think if you actually sit down and read it, I bet you will agree with my conclusion that this trial actually clearly demonstrates that there is no benefit from fluvoxamine despite their conclusions. So what are the problems with the trial? Well, there's a lot. They changed their primary outcome, which is always a problem, but it's really problematic here. They were trying to look at hospitalizations. So can fluvoxamine decrease the number of people admitted to hospital? And that would be important. But they biased the study right from the outset because they didn't look at all-cause hospitalizations. They decided to only count hospitalizations due to COVID. And we've talked about this in Journal Jam before, when the trials use disease-specific mortality rather than all-cause mortality. And really, it can fundamentally bias your entire trial to the point where you can't really trust the results. But much more importantly, in my mind, this outcome is inherently biased. It's a very bad outcome. Imagine a patient getting admitted to the ICU with serotonin syndrome, very sick. That's not COVID related. So that patient doesn't get counted here. In fact, that patient would get counted as a good outcome in this trial, right? The same thing accounts for anaphylaxis or adverse events. They aren't COVID related and therefore they end up being counted as good outcome, not hospitalized due to COVID. That's ridiculous. So when you design your trial in an a way that is inherently biased from the outset. The trial is fundamentally broken and you just can't trust the results. And unfortunately, we've already talked about a couple trials that did this. This is a very common theme in these uh, COVID trials. It happened in the bus trials. It'll come back up some again with remdesivir. It's a big problem. But I'll tell you, the funny thing about the TOGETHER trial, there actually was no statistical difference in the number of patients admitted to hospital, quote unquote, with COVID. And there was no difference in death. That was their primary outcome. So how do they end up concluding that this was a positive trial? Well, they changed their primary outcome partway through, not just to include hospitalization due to COVID, but also emergency department observations more than six hours due to COVID. And their logic at the time was that Brazil was sort of swamped and hospitals were admitting fewer patients. But here's the problem. Being observed and then sent home, that's a positive outcome. Hospital admission is a negative outcome. Combining the two together makes no sense at all. If you watch somebody in the emergency department for six hours and they are healthy enough to go home, that's a healthy patient. That's a good outcome. You watch them and they're healthy. Nobody's sending home sick patients. So that's, exact, that's not an outcome you're trying to avoid with treatment. 
But those patients get lumped in with the same patients getting admitted to the ICU here as if they're the same thing. No. ED observation and a send home that's a good outcome, counting it as bad, makes absolutely no sense at all. And that was the only thing that was changed in this trial. There was no change in mortality, no change in hospitalization, no change in mechanical ventilation, no change in the date, number of days ventilated, no change in the number of days hospitalized. The together trial was clearly a negative trial. And so those are the only two RCTs published at this point. There are some other ongoing trials. And I mentioned Stop, Stop COVID was a pilot trial. Well, there's also the Stop COVID 2 trial. It's not published, but we know that it's been stopped and it's been stopped for futility. It's a negative trial. We just don't know what the results are yet. And this is something we probably need to talk about at the end, but it's one of the major sources of bias throughout the COVID literature, publication bias. These apparently exciting positive trials get rushed to publication. In fact, we're acting on just press releases, but these higher quality negative trials just get no attention and they may be published six months, 12 months later. We may never see it. I don't know. So, so to me, look, the fluvoxamine is probably the easiest of all these topics to summarize, and I think we'll probably disagree a little bit, but the TOGETHER trial is a clearly negative trial despite their conclusions. The STOP COVID-2 trial is done, and it's apparently negative. So there's absolutely no convincing evidence that fluvoxamine provides any benefit. I don't think there's any reason before these trials to think that fluvoxamine would provide benefit. And all these drugs, any drug can cause a degree of harm. So to me, the conclusion is really, really easy. I don't think anybody should be prescribing fluvoxamine for COVID-19, full stop. Further RCTs are reasonable, but this is not a drug people should be using clinically. Tell us what you really think, Justin. <laughs> all right. I mean, would it make me feel less depressed about my COVID at least? I think that's a good point though, Anton. I mean, I, I think there is probably a psychological effect. We know that it, it improves people's mood. And that may keep them, you know, I don't think they look carefully enough. That may keep them out of hospital if they're feeling a little bit better overall when maybe they would have had an increased visit. And I think the other thing to, to think about, and we're seeing this pattern, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, I think, with some of the other studies, is this common pattern of changing outcomes and stopping studies during interim analysis. Um, and, and this is what we were alluding to earlier, is that the, the threshold for good science hasn't changed and it shouldn't change for COVID-19. We do have to make decisions quickly to save lives and to help people, as Andrew also spoke about. But we can't take these results of the studies to be the, the sort of end-all answers to whether these drugs work or not. And I think especially for the, for the fluoxamine study and some of the antiviral medications, you're going to see if you look longer out on these patients when they start to follow them through time, that some of the effect size is going to be smaller and some of the safety outcomes may be higher. So you may not be getting as much benefit and patients are going to be having more side effects and that's not being communicated to patients yet. So I think that's important to keep in mind with these studies. And I'm in agreement with Justin. I don't think there's really a role for this medication right now in patients who, who have covid the reasons why one might consider including fluvoxamine with what we know right now, imagine a place where there isn't much access to therapy. That could be a lower middle income country that doesn't have citrovimab. And all of a sudden, you've got a large number of cases and you're saying, okay, well, what can we give? So one possibility is inhaled corticosteroids, not cheap, by the way, which we haven't talked about. And, and they seem to go pretty quickly. On the other hand, fluvoxamine is in abundant supply, is very cheap 
And even though we have a very low certainty of effect, the magnitude of effect, potential magnitude effect is, it's not insignificant, right? I'm not, I'm not a real believer in fluvoxamine, like in terms of its overall effectiveness. But when you think about all those other factors, there may be a rationale to offer it, unless you believe, which I think some people might, that, you know, fluvoxamine is more likely to cause harm than to cause benefit. But we've got a lot of experience with fluvoxamine. There are problems with it. It incre- it interacts, especially with caffeine. Caffeine's a real issue with fluvoxamine. It has other drug interactions as well. But it does have a track record of safety. You know, it's been used uh, millions and millions of, by millions and millions of people around the world. And so it does drop a little bit in terms of its its risk profile. And there are some favorable aspects to it. But I agree. I'm totally agnostic on whether over time it will prove to be beneficial. There is one fairly sizable randomized control trial that's just being completed. I think they have like 30 patients left to enroll, and hopefully that will give us a more definitive answer. I kind of see this as the same as budesonide, is that uh, if the pandemic has uh, tipped someone over into depression and they can fulfill the criteria for major depressive disorder while they have COVID then sure, why not try an SSRI? Uh, But otherwise, it sounds like the evidence just is not there. We haven't really come to any agreement on any of these medications yet. (laughs) To summarize that, we have a bit of disagreement, but I think we'll all agree that there's no good evidence for SSRIs that perhaps maybe in resource-challenged locations that there may in the future be a role. So we've talked about the three categories, the SSRIs, the inhaled corticosteroids, and the biologics, the MABs. Uh, The last one are the nucleoside analogs, the ones that end in VIR, the remdesivir, molnupiravir, and Paxlovid, which is a combination one. Now, just before we get into the outpatient use of these, Andrew, could you give us the sort of quick lowdown on the evidence for remdesivir for inpatients, and then we can talk about outpatients? The remdesivir story for inpatients, I think, is the most fascinating therapeutic story in all of COVID since the pandemic started. Um, I think everyone probably remembers that meeting in the Oval Office when Anthony Fauci met with President Trump and announced that they're stopping Act 1 early because of a benefit from remdesivir in terms of length of stay and patients were more likely to get better and and be discharged from hospital unquestionably if, if they were receiving remdesivir versus placebo. So this trial was halted early before identifying any mortality benefit or any any other really strong benefit that we could identify. I was a huge skeptic of this. It was approved. It was approved without uh, a manuscript. And very shortly thereafter, people were prescribing remdesivir. And then three other trials that that came out. One was out of Wuhan, which didn't seem to show a benefit. It was all in hospitalized patients. But most importantly, there was the solidarity trial, which is the WHO-run trial that had, I don't know, roughly 5,000 patients, we'll say in either treatment or control, not placebo-controlled. They took everyone who came in and were hospitalized, either on supplemental oxygen, not, ho- not 
not on oxygen or in the ICU. And if you looked at it overall, there was no benefit. And the WHO came out and said, there's no benefit for remdesivir. They actually published it as a suite of all these early drugs, including lopinavir, ritonavir, and hydroxychloroquine. And they just said, you know, it just doesn't work. Another trial came out with SIMPLE2, which was another trial that showed benefit. Um, it actually showed the most benefit of, out of any of the trials. And really what we had is NIH saying, you know, small, well-done trial, placebo-controlled, showing a benefit, but does, but stopped early before showing any mortality benefit. And then the solidarity trial showing really no benefit whatsoever. But they kept on, it, it was unquestionable in both Act one and in solidarity that patients who had already reached mechanical ventilation, and just like we were talking about early, these are the really, really sick patients who've been probably infected for well over 10 days. There was no benefit, possibly harm with remdesivir. And there didn't seem to be much. There's wide confidence intervals for patients who weren't on oxygen. But these patients who are on sort of supplemental oxygen, but weren't mechanically ventilated, all the trials actually showed a point estimate that was beneficial, and it was actually pretty consistent. It was somewhere around uh, 0.82 in terms of a risk ratio. And because of that, Solidarity kept on enrolling patients, just those who were not mechanically ventilated but admitted to hospital on supplemental oxygen. The WHO said not to use remdesivir starting in like late 2020. They halted the trial in the spring of 2021. We still don't have that data. They haven't released the data. They've stopped the trial and they haven't released the data. The Canadian investigators for the Canadian arm of that study published in CMAJ just a few weeks ago and showed what seemed to be consistent from the other trials, which is that remdesivir given in patients on supplemental oxygen only show a benefit, an effect that was consistent with all the other ones. And, and we've been saying this at the science table for months and months now, that based on this consistent signal, the theoretical benefit, and it's probably a timing issue, that this is going to be uh, beneficial. But we don't have the data from Solidarity. They haven't even told anyone in the world. There's been no announcement. There's no preprint, no nothing, with thousands and thousands of, pay, of volunteers, and yet th there's nothing. I believe this is scandalous, right? Like we've had all these waves passed with no answer. So either what I believe is tr to be true, which is there's a benefit because of all these, uh, all these uh, consistent results and patients are being denied because nobody seems to believe it enough and they're listening to the WHO, or it's not beneficial, possibly even harmful, and we shouldn't be using the remdesivir at least not wasting it on these inpatients when we could be using it, which we'll talk about perhaps in, in, in the outpatients. So to me, that's, you know, that, it's a huge story. And I, I just can't believe that there isn't a hue and a cry about, about this. Wow, fascinating. So you personally believe that there's a benefit for inpatients who are on oxygen, but not needed to be ventilated. So my conclusions about remdesivir in the inpatient are somewhat different than Andrew's. For the sake of uh, brevity today, I'm not going to go into them all, but I do have a long blog post on remdesivir on my blog. And if anybody wants to explore the evidence further, they can check check there. But it is worth noting that different people look at this evidence and come to pretty different conclusions on the topic. 
So that's a little bit about the inpatient data for remdesivir. Andrew's conclusion is that there probably is some benefit for patients requiring supplemental oxygen, but not for ventilated patients. Justin disagrees with that. That's just a bit of background so that we can now understand the outpatient data. Rohit, can you tell us a little bit? I understand there's just one study on outpatients with remdesivir. What did that show? Yeah, so that's the pine tree study published a few weeks ago. It's a double-blinded, randomized controlled trial. It starts out kind of looking pretty good to realize they shifted their, their endpoint. So they were looking at a composite endpoint, which has some problems of its own. And they're looking at either hospitalization related to COVID-19 for greater than 24 hours or death from any cause. Initially, they were looking at the first two weeks, but then they extended it because they weren't getting enough of their outcome. And that's always concerning. You're, you're really starting to cherry pick for outcomes at that case if you start playing with them midway through the study because you're realizing that what you're, what you're looking for is not there. And so you really risk having a, a false positive result when you start doing that. The other thing is the published data we have right now is interim analysis. So there are still patients that are being followed up. So we don't have all the information about their prognosis. And again, even though their numbers percentage-wise looks good, 5.3% in the placebo group had a COVID-related hospitalization or death by day 28, the absolute numbers are, are much lower. Only 15 of those patients actually ended up in hospital and placebo, and, and two of the patients who were on remdesivir. Um, another thing I found interesting was that when they were looking at viral loads, there wasn't actually a change in viral loads when they were sampling PCR in the upper airway. So I'm wondering if it's actually having an effect, biologically speaking. And they also, they had excluded patients who had vaccination for COVID-19. So again, as we move forward in the pandemic, you know, is this really going to have as much of an effect as they are saying it is? I don't think so. And I think, you know, Justin's making a good point from the data we have from the inpatient side of things. If there is a benefit, it's not going to be as big as, as we're seeing right now in these studies. All right. Okay. So that's outpatient remdesivir. What about molnupiravir? I understand there was a pretty well done RCT on that. Yeah. So molnupiravir does have a pretty well designed study. So this trial was a good randomized control trial looking at patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 with a risk factor for progressing to severe disease. They looked at uh, hospitalization or death at uh, one month, and it, it did show to be decreased from 9.7% to 6.8%. Some of the things that kind of worried me about this study was, again, they stopped early for interim analysis, so they felt that the effect size was good enough that they could stop the trial. And one of the problems with that is, with molnupiravir, is there's a lot of side effects and drug interactions, and you miss out on some of that safety data that if patients do take it for longer periods of time, what kind of side effects and safety problems are, are they going to have? Another thing was they, they sort of enrolled patients during the big lull in, in COVID kind of in the summer of 2021. So I do wonder if their incidence of patients who had COVID was much less. And, and they're still missing a lot of the data in terms of other things that might help us understand the results, things like viral load and other secondary outcomes. Another interesting thing I found about this study was some of the comments from the virology community about this drug. There are some concerns that if it's not used properly, it can actually induce more variants of the coronavirus itself. So making sure that it's been given for the proper amount of time and at the right doses, and taking into account that it does have a significant amount of side effects. 
And my understanding is that this drug is not yet approved by Health Canada. It's something that may be coming. From what I see, I don't think we have enough information to recommend it. And certainly there's a long list of exclusion criteria and side effects that will need to be taken into account. Yeah, I think there's a, thing, a couple of things to emphasize there. The study, you know, it's a pretty small absolute benefit here. And the study has a fragility index of two. This is unvaccinated patients who are, again, only seronegative patients. So you'd presumably have to be doing some kind of testing for that if, if you wanted, or at least just screening your patients good. But I think maybe more important, I mentioned publication bias above. We know that there are at least two other RCTs that have been stopped for quite some time in India for apparently no benefit but they're not published yet. So it's the classic, the positive published study gets published and we talk about it, but the negative studies that we know exist aren't, aren't published anywhere. We, we, we don't see them. So to me, the publication bias is maybe the biggest concern about this drug. In terms of the nucleoside analogs, uh, the ones ending in VIR, V-I-R, we've talked about remdesivir, we've talked about molnupiravir. The last one is Paxlovid, which is a combination of nirmatrelvir and ritonavir. So let's just go through the data for that. Rohit, could you run us through Paxlovid? Yeah, so this is an interesting one because the only data we have is from a press release. So we actually don't know much about how this drug works and, and what the numbers were. The number needed to treat, I think, is an interesting number. So you have to treat about 17 or 18 patients with this drug to prevent one hospitalization based on the very limited data we have. Um, and there's a huge list of contraindications and drug interactions that need to be factored in. As well, you've got to think about pregnancy in uh, women of childbearing age. And there's also a very short window to start this medication, five days plus having a positive PCR test. And we don't have any indication of what the safety outcomes are for patients. So it's hard for me to, to kind of sit down with a patient and say, you know, I'm going to give you a drug that may not help you stay out of hospital, and it may give you a lot of side effects, which I can't really list to you. So I think we need a bit more information about this one before we can really give a good recommendation on it. Yeah, I think you're maybe too polite and, and too political there. Come, come on. I, I, for me, this is an absolute no. No physician should ever prescribe a medication that has no published data and only the say-so of the drug company. You know, it, you take their press release, that's ridiculous. Uh, the press release looks good. We have the FDA-like data. You can really dig into it, but come on. We, we need a published study before anybody really should be prescribing this. I'm pretty strong on that as a, an EBM supporter. Yeah, huge list of drug interactions, huge list of contraindications. They need a positive PCR test. So, I mean, we recently with Omicron, we haven't even been swabbing patients for COVID uh, unless they're hospitalized. And we're talking about outpatients here. So we got to start swabbing them and then wait for the PCR result. And it has to be within five days. I think we should just move on. Forget about Paxlovid. Let's talk about the nucleoside analogs in general. Andrew, could you kind of give us your summary? So we're talking remdesivir, molnupiravir, and forget about Paxlovid. If it were a loved one, I would give them remdesivir. And I, I would base that on the consistency of the evidence that we have and the experience that we have with remdesivir, where it's been prescribed tens, if not hundreds of thousands of times with no significant danger signals or, or adverse effect signals whatsoever. To me, I, th I think that's, uh, that would be the one agent. The problem with remdesivir is that it's three days of infusion. So from a pragmatic perspective, it's a real problem. 
you know, I'll give you the inside perspective from a guideline author is that what we have is a, or what we've had over the last while is a public that's clamoring for therapy, a drug that's been approved by Health Canada and really shortage of effective therapeutics. So everyone here is, has so far, other than me, has kind of really been skeptical about any therapeutics. You've got lots of people who are potentially getting sick and you can say, okay, we'll wait. We're not going to give you really anything because we don't really believe in it. We're going to wait until you get into hospital. And then once you get in hospital, we'll give you something also based on somewhat imperfect data, but at least we'll b- believe it. And I think the average person on the street probably, you know, wouldn't accept that. And, you know, I think that's the feedback that we've gotten. And that's why every guideline to some degree has recommended Paxlovid. Although I will say that for our guidelines, we put it below citrovimab, below remdesivir. So as a third line agent, which I think surprised a lot of people, which is different than most other guidelines. I am also extremely uncomfortable with creating a guideline or making a recommendation where we don't have a manuscript, but I guess we've got the real world, right? And and that's the problem that we have is you, you've got a, a treatment. If a drug company with a drug that Health Canada has approved and they've said, we've actually got a cure, a total cure for an agent and Health Canada has said, there's no, they're not concerned about safety signals. Will you take it? You know, I, th- I think a lot of people would, some some wouldn't, but a l- certainly a lot of people would. But it's certainly a reason we had a, a huge pause, which is why, you know, it's like third line agent. The things that really concern me about Paxlovid are that the experience is primarily in relatively young, uncomplicated people. And, and they're the people who were least likely to be using it. Um, so that's my biggest concern there. Molnupiravir, I'd probably give to an in-law, but I'd never give it to my parents. <laughs> I had a, a lot of concerns around molnupiravir, especially the fact that their final analysis and the interim analysis outcomes were so different in terms of e- efficacy. Uh, it was a huge red flag for me. And the mutagenesis, I think because we have other therapeutics that I'm going to say at the end of the day are probably going to prove to be beneficial, I hope they will be, especially uh, Paxlovid. If we have those, I'm not sure why we would use an agent that doesn't have tremendous efficacy and and has safety concerns from a sort of public health perspective, more so than an individual health perspective. Probably give a, a B to remdesivir, a C to Paxlovid, and a, a D to molnupiravir, and none of them get an A, and I'll, I won't give any of them an E. And so my, I won't prolong this too long, but my quick rebuttal, I'll do a couple things. I, the logic of patients clamoring for interventions, uh, it, it, I don't think that's a good reason for us to be pr- providing them, right? If we did that in the emergency department, every single patient would get a CT of their head. Every patient would get an MRI of their knee and every patient would be on anti- antibiotics and Tamiflu and, and everything else. The, the point is we have to review the evidence and, and do what's best for, for, for patients. And that's the point of going through all the, this evidence here. And it, it, I, I don't think we should be changing things because people on guideline committees as citizens are saying we we really want it we need to be explaining the potential harms here i think you know since we're reviewing kind of as an evidence-based group you know we have to think about what's the quality of the evidence and i don't think the quality is good so we're making decisions uh about you know especially things like paxovid which is being promoted in the press as a way to keep people out of hospital and as a cure for covid 
I think we need to be careful with saying it. Yes, we do have some studies on it, but it's not good studies. And I don't really know how, how much harm this is going to give you. And I don't think it may give you an individual benefit. I think that's an important thing, both from kind of a, a guideline perspective, but also from an individual physician and patient conversation. You know, we don't really know enough about these and we don't really have a high level of evidence to say that this is going to give you the benefit that, that some people are saying it might. Suffice to say that with all the data we've talked about, there have been all kinds of problems. There's probably some overestimating of the benefit where there does seem to be some benefit. There might be in some of these trials some underestimation of the harm. We have the problem of figuring out the ever-changing world of COVID in terms of the different variants, in terms of people who are vaccinated and the degree to how vaccinated they are and the timing of that. We've got issues about cost, about getting access to these medications. The one thing I can say is that it's all quite depressing. And if I get COVID, just give me the SSRI. <laughs> no, that, that joking aside, I think the one thing that we can all agree on is that if you're going to reach for one drug for outpatient COVID, that's going to be citrovimab. I think that last point you made is really valuable and something that our listeners are going to want to think about a little bit more. And maybe Andrew can give us a little bit more guidance on is where this goes in the future and sort of the opportunity cost around this a little bit. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've been testing for COVID now as a public health measure for two years, and we've never really done that for other viruses. And I think it's sort of unrealistic to think that we're going to continue testing uh, for COVID forever. It's been, don't get me wrong, it's been very important to test for COVID right now. But in order to use these th therapies, especially Especially as COVID prevalence is lower and influenza comes back, we're going to have to confirm COVID. And that requires a pretty massive healthcare investment, right? We need to have testing facilities or patients are coming to the emergency department. Um, and if our treatments are saving lives, then it's really worth it. But if the only difference is a 2 or 4% decrease in hospital use, then we might have some pretty big questions to, to ask because you have to know, right? So the absolute number, the number needed to treat, we've been talking about, you know, 16 or, or 17. The problem with that is how many patients do you have to test in order to find those 17 patients, right? What's the cost of that? What is the opportunity cost of testing every single patient with flu-like illness? Uh, next winter or two winters from now, are we going to have every single patient coming to the emergency department to do a COVID test based on this evidence? You know, if there's a very marginal uh, benefit, there's a huge cost to identifying the, those patients. And I think that external part of this is important to consider as we leave the pandemic. I think a, part, a big part, you hear me and Andrew disagree throughout this. A big part of that is during the pandemic, you might be willing to do a lot of this stuff, but what do we do next year during the flu season? You want to use the biggest bang for your buck. And I'm not sure that any of the treatments we talked about today, the evidence was strong enough or the bang was necessarily big for our buck as we, we go forward. I don't know what people's comments or thoughts on that is. That is an excellent question, Justin. I think the person most suited to answer that is Andrew. Andrew? I think there's just a lot of uncertainty around what will happen with uh, all respiratory viruses. I've had several discussions with people over the last while. What will inevitably result from our experience with COVID is a governmental and bureaucratic realization that overcrowding that occurs in winter months 
is heavily contributed to by respiratory viruses. And, you know, how we uh, mitigate that those effects are going to change dramatically, and they'll be heavily informed by our experience with COVID. And that will include public health measures, infection prevention control measures, but I think it will also uh, affect how we consider therapeutics and, and the overall benefit. COVID therapeutics are, by, apart from corticosteroids and, and fluvoxamine, they're pretty expensive, right? But so, so is COVID hospitalization. COVID hospitalization is very expensive. Uh, and by and large, it's more expensive than the therapeutics, but it really does depend on, on your number needed to treat and how well you identify high-risk patients. So, you know, I think the story's going to be uh, told in the future. We will almost certainly just have a suite of respiratory viruses that we test for in the future. It won't just be COVID and influenza. It'll be most of them, at least the ones that we have therapeutics for. And the most transmissible ones, they'll be screened. So when you come into hospital, you'll be tested for, you know, COVID, influenza, parainfluenza, RSV, and, uh, you know, perhaps uh, adeno and metanumovirus as well. And you'll be tested for all of those. Some of those we have treatments. Some of them treatments will follow um, soon. And I think we'll also absolutely reconsider how we use antibacterials in these patients and how we use corticosteroids in non-COVID diseases. We don't know yet, right? There's a lot of controversy, and we've talked about this before on this podcast. But, uh, you know, I, I think... COVID will, will change much of how we've thought about things moving forward for a variety of reasons. Very well said. Well, thank you, gentlemen. That was uh, really quite fascinating, the breadth. I wasn't expecting quite the breadth of opinions. I think the sort of one-line conclusion for what we do right now at the bedside is if you're going to reach for one drug and you have access to that one drug, which is a big problem... But if you do have access to sotrivimab, then that would be the one drug you would reach for. There's going to be huge variations in access to the drug, but it should be something that you sit down with your ED group and try and look at where you can get access to this if uh, you do buy the evidence. (laughs) 